afternoon, and we are in Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11, we'll read the whole chapter, but we'll do the first 16 verses. And that's because, again, in the greater part of this book, um, you have these Proverbs, these statements, and so we just take them one at a time, and uh, in usually these chapters, if you do uh, half of it is sufficient for one setting. So Proverbs 11, verse 1, says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding keeps silent. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. When there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. He who is guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. The wicked earn deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. And he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. A ring of gold in a swine's snout. So is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And yet there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters with himself will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the many truths, Lord, that are illuminated for us here in Proverbs chapter 11. We pray that you would, Lord, teach us to notice and to understand this distinction 
Lord, between the righteous and the wicked. Lord, in the way that the one behaves and lives, and Lord, the outcome of the one over the other. Lord, that we might hate sin and we might love what is good and righteous and walk in your ways and do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us, Lord, this wisdom and this understanding, Lord, to discern between good and evil. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Or again, we remember that in the book of Proverbs, you do have this contrast that is being laid out between the righteous and the wicked, both in the way that they live, what is true of them, and what will become of them, right? Both in this life, but ultimately in the life to come. And this is what, again, the book of Proverbs is teaching us. It is teaching us to hate sin and to love righteousness, to walk with God, to live an upright and a godly life, not for our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, as a result of what God has done for us in Christ, then we should live a godly life. And we have this set before us as a reminder of what will happen to the righteous on the day of judgment and what will happen to the wicked on the day of judgment, that we might hate sin and love righteousness and not uh, take part in, not join in a crowd in doing evil or with a multitude in doing evil. So here... He's laying out these various teachings, these various proverbs that are illuminating for us this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. So let's begin there in verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Here in our dealings with other people, and we're talking here about commerce, about finance, about the way that we treat one another in regards to money, uh, weights, measurements, these types of things. This is what they're talking about. If someone is coming and they're selling grain or whatever it is that they're selling, and it has to be measured out in a balance, and you have the balance rigged in such a way that it favors you over and against your neighbor so that you are shorting him, you're not giving him an honest pay for what he is bringing. It is deceptive in the way it comes across. And the reason one would do this is for their own benefit for their own financial benefit. Well, is this loving your neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you doing to others as you would want them to do to you? Because don't even thieves get upset if someone steals from them? Well, how can you get upset if someone steals from you when you do this all the time to others, right? You can't do that. Well, this is the case here. We don't want someone cheating us. We don't want someone paying us less than what we are owed. Right? If we come and we bring 100 pounds of something, whatever it is, and they only pay us for 90, well, they're cheating us out of the 10 pounds. Right? They're cheating us out of what is our due. And this happens when people use false balances or false weights in this way. And this is why it's an abomination to God. God sees it and God knows what's going on. He sees this craftiness that has taken place, this deception, this cheating and stealing that is going on. It's an abomination in his sight, but a just weight is his delight. When we deal justly and righteously with one another in a fair and in an honest way, that's the way that we should be. Even if it harms us, even if it uh, causes us to be deprived, we should want to be fair and just toward our neighbor and do what is good and right in his sight. If the cashier gives us back more money than what we are due, then what is the honest thing to do? Is to give it back. To go back and say, you made a mistake and you gave me back more money. This is what we would want for someone to do to us, isn't it? 
then shouldn't we do it to our neighbor, right? This is just teaching the principle of loving your neighbor as yourself, doing to others as you would have them to do to you in our dealings with one another. Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 to 16 Deuteronomy 25:13 says you shall not have in your bag differing weights a large and a small you shall not have in your house differing measures a large and a small you shall have a full and just weight you shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land that the Lord your God gives you for everyone who does these things everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination To the Lord your God. So when we behave in this way, in an unjust way, in our dealings with others, when we're trying to uh, bamboozle them, snicker them, take advantage of them by manipulating various things to our own advantage, then we're behaving unjustly and it's an abomination to God. And we should not do those things, but rather we should be fair, honest, upright, just in the way that we deal with one another. Our words should be good, and the way that we handle these things should be done in an upright way. Verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Pride comes before the fall. When a person has pride, he ultimately is going to be dishonored, right? His pride is going to become so grotesque, so obvious, so disgusting, that he's going to be dishonored, right, in the sight of God, but also in the sight of others. But with the humble is wisdom, right? When a man thinks that he is the fount of all wisdom and all knowledge, and that he's right on everything, eventually he's going to be dishonored, because he's going to be proven that he's not nearly as wise and crafty as he perceives of himself to be. But the humble man is the one who has wisdom. Because he sees his own deficiencies, he sees and understands that he is not the source of all wisdom, and he's going to look for wisdom from above, from God, right? Where he will be lifted up and honored, and he will gain true wisdom from God. In order for us to advance in godliness, to advance in wisdom, we have to be humble. We have to realize that we don't understand everything, that we need to be taught And we need God to be our teacher and others who are going to instruct us in the ways of God. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud in James 4, 6. He gives grace to the humble. And then in Luke 14, Luke 14, verse 11 Luke 14 and verse 11 says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who seek their own exaltation, they're going to be humbled by God. But those who are humble, God will exalt them. This is the way that we have to live and how we have to be both in our relationship to God and in our relationship to one another. We should take the humble approach. We should be servants of all. We shouldn't seek to be masters over others and shouldn't seek to put others down at our own expense in order to lift ourselves up over and against our brothers. Verse 3, 
The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Here, the integrity of the upright will guide them. Right, their integrity, which is a synonym for their righteousness, their godliness, their desire to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God. If a man has integrity of heart and he wants his life to be pure and free from evil, from injustice, when he wants to pursue what is good and right, well, that's going to guide him in his life to do what's pleasing in the sight of God, to do those things that are not contrary to the word of God. But on the contrast, the wicked man, he's crooked. He is crooked. He's a crooked, treacherous man, and it will destroy him. The wicked man does not want to walk on the path of uprightness. He does not have any integrity, but he delights in committing sins against God, in going off crooked paths, crooked ways. They want to leave the highway of holiness, leave the path of God, and turn aside to another path, to a crooked path. But when we turn aside from the pathway of God's word and we pursue the crooked paths of sin, what will ultimately happen to us? will be destroyed, right? It's going to destroy him if he lives in this way. Psalm 119, 119, 29 to 32. Notice here that he says, Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. There, he wants wants this pathway of integrity. He's asking God to give him the faithful way. Give me your law. Remove the false way from me. I want the ordinance of God before me. I want to run in the way of your commandments. This is what he desires and what he wants from God. Then in Psalm 119.21, Psalm 119.21 says, You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. This to their own demise and destruction. And they will be rebuked by God because of their wandering away from God. Verse 4. 4 to 6. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Here, the two are contrasted in terms of the life to come. Here, first, the wicked man. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. In the day of wrath... On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, will a man be able to present his riches to God as the basis for his salvation? Will a man be able to buy his way into heaven on the day of judgment and say, God, I'm very wealthy, I'm a very wealthy man, and I will give you part of my wealth if you will let me into heaven? Is that the way it's going to work? No. So riches are not going to profit anyone on the day of wrath. Riches may be beneficial in this life if they're used in the right way, but no one will take their money with them to the life to come. It all stays here. It's only for this life. We come into the world naked and we leave the world 
naked, with nothing, and then we stand before God. So riches will not profit a man on the day of wrath. On the day of wrath. Also, verse 5, the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Right? His own sin, his own wickedness will be brought forward on the day of judgment, and that is what he will be judged according to. His own sins will come back to haunt him. Right? Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. The wicked man sows wickedness, so on the day of judgment he will reap the reward of sin. And what is the reward of sin? What is the wage of sin? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He will receive death as the reward for his wickedness. Then in verse 6, the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Their own greed. They are greedy for unjust gain. They love money. They're lovers of money and they're lovers of pleasure. And they do treacherous things in order to get money because of their greed, their desire for unjust wealth. Well, won't they be judged for that? If they pursue wealth in unjust, sinful ways, in greedy ways, if they're greedy in the way that they use their money, then God's going to repay them for that. Right? They weren't generous. They weren't liberal toward others in the way that they used their money. This is like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he feasted sumptuously every day. But he had no regard for the poor man Lazarus who was there in front of him who had legitimate needs and he had the means to meet those needs because he was a greedy, miserly man. And what happened to him as a result of his greed? It came back upon him. And as he did to Lazarus, so now it is being done to him. You lived sumptuously. You feasted in this way during life and you had your reward in life. And now you're being tormented and Lazarus is being comforted in the life to come. This is what will happen to the wicked. But for the righteous, righteousness delivers from death. In verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them. Riches do not help on the day of judgment, but what does help on the day of judgment? Righteousness. Whose righteousness? Well, it has to first be the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ accounted to us is what will help us, which is what will give us approval before God on the day of wrath. That's the only source of salvation. That is the only thing that gains the approval of God and grants a man admittance into the kingdom of heaven. They must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So primarily his righteousness, then even in this life, when we are clothed with his righteousness, when his righteousness is accounted to us by faith, then what does it do to us? It makes us live a godly life. And then that godliness will be brought forward as evidence on the day of judgment that we belong to Christ. That we're not false believers, but we are true believers. We have true faith in Christ, and it will be manifested by the good works that God produced in us through the Holy Spirit. And this is what will help us on the day of judgment. Not riches. Not riches. Why would we put our hope in riches? Knowing that it's all going to be destroyed. It's not going to be of any benefit or value. Yes, there is a place for money, there's a place for wealth and riches, and for us to use them in this life to benefit our family, right? to benefit the church, to help others, to, to live in this life. But we should not put our hope 
on the uncertainty of riches. That is what the wicked do, the treacherous. They are the ones that put their hope in money, but we shouldn't be like that. We should have a sober mind about us and see what money is and hold it in its proper place and not love money more than we love God. Verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish and the hope of strong men perishes. When the wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. Well, what is the expectation of all wicked men? They all expect to have long life, to have more riches, to have more honor, to have more pleasure, and then to have happiness for all eternity doing all the things that they love doing in heaven. If they like to play golf on earth, then what are they going to do in heaven? They're going to play golf. If they like to hunt and fish on earth, then what are they going to do in heaven? They're going to hunt and fish. If they like to go shopping on earth, then that's what they're going to do in heaven, right? And it's going to be great and wonderful. This is what they expect. This is what they do in this life. And this is what they expect in the life to come. But when he dies, what happens to that expectation? He is hit with a sober reality, square in the face, that all of the things that he expected, all of his hopes and dreams were lies. They're lies. His expectation is going to perish when he stands before God and realizes that there is a God of righteousness, that there is a day of judgment, that there is a hell where sinners will be tormented for all eternity. And he is not going to have an eternity of bliss and fun and pleasure and a good time, but rather, he's going to be in hell for all eternity. His expectation is going to perish, and there will be nothing. And the hope of the strong man, it perishes as well. This is what will happen to him in the life to come. We referenced earlier Luke 16. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, 19. says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. And now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they also will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises 
from the dead. So there, the expectation of the rich man. Surely he didn't expect this to happen in the life to come. And yet, it's exactly what did happen. It perished whenever he perished. Verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. The righteous, God delivers them. God delivers them from their trouble. Now, he can do this in this life. And there are examples of God doing that in this life. Delivering the righteous from trouble and then causing a wicked man to take the place of the righteous and the evil that was intended for the righteous man then comes upon the evil and the wicked man. There's a really good example of this in the book of Esther. The book of Esther, chapter 7, this is exactly what happens here. The righteous man was delivered from trouble, and then the wicked man took his place. Esther, chapter 7, verse 7, says, The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. The king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman to the enemy of the Jews to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what, was, what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Well, isn't that verse 8 personified right there in those people? The righteous delivered from trouble, the wicked man taking his place, being hung, and there being this reversal. And that is given to us as an emblem of what God will do for all of the righteous on the day of judgment. Right? Even if we perish at the hands of wicked men in this life, ultimately on the day of judgment, the righteous will be delivered and the wicked will take their place because they will go to eternal torment. Verse 9, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. His mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He uses his tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is on his lips. This is what the godless man does. Through his mouth, he destroys the soul of his neighbor by teaching him lies, teaching him falsehood, telling him things that are not true about God. Right? This is what false teachers do. This is the work that they do in the, in the church and in the world. They destroy men with their mouths, with their tongue, with their heresies that contradict the very word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it teaches such. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Here, the means used to deceive these people is the hypocrisy of liars seared by their own conscience, as with the branding iron. The instrument of the body, the member of the body used to bring harm to their neighbor, to destroy their neighbor, it's their tongue, it's their mouth, where they teach them the doctrine of demons to their own ruin and destruction. So, the godless man destroys his neighbor with his mouth, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. The righteous man will be delivered from the godless man's mouth through knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the word of God. It's the word of God that gives the righteous man the ability to discern between good and evil because he's able to determine, like we read earlier from 1 John, anyone who does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh doesn't have the spirit of God. So if someone is teaching me that Jesus didn't have a body, that Jesus was just a spirit, he had the appearance of having a body, but it was just an illusion. Well, from that knowledge I gain from 1 John, I know that this person is a liar. I know that they're not telling me the truth, and I'm going to be delivered from his lies through knowledge of the Word of God. This is why we have to know the Bible, because the Bible gives us the discernment to be able to distinguish between who is a true teacher and who is a false teacher, and it is by this knowledge that we are delivered from their lies. The righteous man is delivered in this way. Verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the righteous are favored, when the blessing is upon them, the whole city benefits, right? The whole kingdom benefits. The whole society benefits when it goes well with the righteous. When the righteous advance, whenever they are given preferential treatment, whenever the government doesn't oppress them but honors them because they do what is good, it goes well with everyone because their righteousness is going to be brought forward, their goodness as an example for other people to follow. And it's going to be a benefit and a blessing to everyone. So when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. It is a benefit. Now again, it, this isn't always the case. Many times people are murmuring and complaining because they hate righteousness. But indeed it is true that in reality, if it goes well with the righteous, it is a benefit to everyone. The whole city is going to benefit because of the presence of the righteous man. And then in the converse of that, when the wicked perish, there's joyful shouting. When the wicked perish, everyone is happy. They're shouting for joy because now they're not going to be tormenting everyone. They're not going to be a blight and a plague upon everyone else, especially when the wicked are rulers, when they are people of influence, people of power, people who are making laws and policies. 
Well, if they're wicked and they're in these positions of power and authority, then aren't they going to perpetuate their wickedness to everyone else? And everyone's going to be miserable because of these people. So when they die, that's nothing for us to be beating our breasts about, boo-hooing and moaning about. When the wicked person dies, there should be rejoicing, shouts of joy that they're no longer able to torment the world with all of their evil deeds. For example, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, that was a very happy day for me, right? It was a day of rejoicing because she was on the Supreme Court for like 200 years. I think when the country was founded, she was one of the initial founding members of the Supreme Court and no one ever thought she was going to die. I think she had long life, perhaps from a demon that was living inside of her. But she was there and she did many evil things. They, she voted in ways that perpetuated and, and made evil lawful in our country, in our society. And the result was not good for anyone. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the Christians. It's not even good for the unbelievers out there. So whenever someone who has that influence and power dies and is no longer able to use their influence and power to perpetuate evil in the society and to oppress Christians, then should we be sad about that? Or should we rejoice? He says that we should rejoice. There should be joyful shouting when that happens. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. The blessing of the upright, God's blessing upon them exalts the city. And then also their blessing on others exalts the city. Because if they're upright, what are they going to be talking about to people? Well, they're going to be talking about the Bible. They're going to be preaching the gospel. This is the blessing that the upright have. They're going to be using a just balance. They're not going to be swindling people. They're going to be honest and fair and upright in their dealings. And this is going to be a blessing to everyone. And maybe other people will emulate them and follow their example. They're going to be influencing the laws and policies of the land so that it spreads the blessing to many other people. Wasn't this the case in many examples in the Bible? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those were all officials in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, in the king of Darius, right? In these kingdoms of the Babylonians and the Persians, well, these are upright, righteous men. So what kind of policies do you think they're promoting in that evil society? They're promoting what's good and right, consistent with the law of God, and therefore is going to have a blessing on the, the culture, the society is not going to be as wicked as it would have been without the influence of those four men. What about Joseph when he was exalted to the second in command in Egypt? Was that good for the country or was that bad for the country for Joseph to be in that exalted position? It was good for them, not only good for them physically because he saved their lives from the famine, but also good for them spiritually because he knows the true God. He knows the gospel. He knows the word of God. And he's going to be there instructing and teaching others in those things. And it's going to bring exaltation and blessing to the city. To the city. But the mouth of the wicked, it tears down the city. Their mouth, which is noxious and has lies and evil in it, they're going to destroy the city in the things that they say, in the things that they do, and the evil that they promote. So it's not wrong for us to desire for Christians to have greater and greater influence in society. Now, 
That does not mean that we're putting our hope in this present world. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't think that if we can just get a true Christian into the White House, then everything's going to be good and great and we're going to get rid of all evil. That's never going to happen. But as long as we live in this world, and we do live in this world, and we have rulers in this world, and we have laws in this world, and we have policies in this world, then don't we want Christians, don't we want those who have some understanding of righteousness in positions of authority so that they can affect the culture and the society so that there's less evil and there's more goodness or social righteousness in the land? Would we rather live in a country that murders babies or that punishes people who murders babies? Well, I'd rather live in one that punishes people that murders babies. Would we rather live in a country that promotes theft, government theft by taking all of our of the tax money? Or would we rather live in a country that allows the citizens to keep their money for the most part so that they can take care and maintain their own families and support whatever causes that they want? Well, I would rather live in the latter, right? Wouldn't you? Of course we would. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. It says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He wants prayers to be made on behalf of kings and those in authority, because if they convert, if they are born again, then they're going to benefit us. They're going to pass laws that make it to where we, the Christian church, can lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Instead of being persecuted for living a godly life, they'll leave us alone, let us raise our families, let us worship our God, and not bother us in the way that can often happen. Uh, another passage, 2 Kings 11 2 Kings 11, and verse 20. 2 Kings eleven twenty 20. says, So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword at the king's house. So there, the, land, the city was quiet and the whole land rejoiced. And what was the reason for this rejoicing? The death of a wicked woman, a wicked queen, an unjust queen. She wasn't even supposed to be in that position. She was put to death justly, and therefore everyone is happy. Because she's not going to be able to perpetuate her evil anymore. And then one last passage, Jeremiah 29 Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to 7. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, actually. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So there, even in Babylon, these exiles are supposed to seek the welfare of the city where they live and to pray to God on its behalf. Because if God blesses the city, who else is going to be blessed? They are. They're going to be blessed as a result of God's favor on the city. This is the way that we should be as well. Wherever we live, wherever we find ourselves, we should pray to God on behalf of our country, on behalf of our state, on behalf of our city, and we should do whatever we can to influence and to have some impact in this life so that more righteousness is promoted and evil is restrained for our benefit and for the benefit of everyone else. Verse 12. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. The one who despises his neighbor, he lacks sense, and he despises him by speaking evil about him, by running him down, by talking to others about his neighbor and what he doesn't like about him. Because eventually, if you're doing that, what's going to get back around to your neighbor? The things that you've said, right? Somebody's going to tell them, hey, you know what, what he said about you? Do you know what he thinks about you? It's going to come back around. Then there's going to be strife and dissonance between you and your neighbor. There's going to be conflict, hostility between the two parties. But a man of understanding keeps silent. Even if his neighbor is a jerk, right? Even if his neighbor is a worthless man, okay, well, he's just going to keep silent. He's not going to go about telling everyone that because he doesn't want there to be needless, unnecessary conflict. He's already an unjust man. He's already hard to live with. And if I go around and badmouth him, then it's just going to be more difficult to have to deal with him. So because I'm an understanding, I don't want to exasperate this conflict and this hostility, then I'm going to keep silent. Keep silent and keep peace as much as I can, which is according to Romans chapter 12. So far, if possible, let us live peaceably with all men. So far as it depends upon us, we should live peaceably with all men. Well, speaking about my neighbor to others is not going to promote peace between me and my neighbor. But keeping silent is. Now, again, he doesn't mean if your neighbor is murdering people and burying them in his backyard, you should keep silent about that. Well, of course, you should tell the authorities about that. But we're talking about things that uh, are not crimes are not things that are worthy of being brought to the authorities, but just nuisance and annoyances that you may have with your neighbor. Keep silent about it and try to keep the peace as much as possible between you and your neighbor. Don't be someone who's involved in constant conflict and strife, trying to stir stuff up between you and your neighbor. Verse 13, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. A tale-bearer, one who goes around revealing the secrets of others. There are things that we tell in confidence to one person or another, things that need to remain private between the two individuals or between whomever needs to know about these things. Well, we shouldn't be betraying one another's confidence and we shouldn't be going around blabbing to other people a tell-bearer who's spreading secrets and telling everyone all the deep, dark, intimate secrets that we know about this other person. If someone confides in us, again, we're not talking about 
if someone confides in me and says, hey, I'm, I murdered this guy, that then I shouldn't go and tell the authorities. Of course I need to tell the authorities. But whenever it is daily sins or things that a person is trying to overcome or that they're trying to repent of and they want to overcome this sin and they entrust that to me and they're asking me to pray for them, asking for accountability for them, well, I shouldn't immediately run to someone else in the church, to my neighbor and say, hey, do you know that, that uh, this person is struggling with this sin? Can you believe that? Man, what a, what a real deadbeat this guy is. Right? And then go to another and say the same thing over and over and over again. That's a tailbearer. You're just going around causing strife, running people down. You're doing it with this ill motive. And he's saying, we shouldn't do that. He's revealing secrets. But the trustworthy man conceals a matter. He keeps it between the two of you because other people don't need to know. He only tells if it is necessary for another person to know. And this is the way that we ought to be with one another. 1 Timothy 5. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, At the same time, they learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to be mentioned. Here, he's talking about these younger widows. This is why he wants them to get married, so that they'll have children and responsibilities at home, and they won't have time to go around from house to house being busybodies, and gossips, and talking about things that they should not mention, right? We shouldn't behave in that way, whether it's men or women, right? Being troublemakers, nuisances, talebearers, gossips, slanderers, busybodies in this way. But rather, we should be sober-minded. We should learn how to control our tongue, conceal a matter, and don't tell it when it's not necessary, absolutely necessary. Verse 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. When there's no guidance, the people fall. When we are not seeking guidance and counsel, whenever we're making decisions, important decisions, then we're going to fail. There's going to be failure. We're going to fall because this is arrogant and pride. It's pride in us that assumes that I can make all my decisions without consulting anyone else, without looking for wisdom from any other source. Well, if we have that mindset that we are the fount of all wisdom and knowledge, eventually what's going to happen? We're going to make some really bad decisions. We're going to make some stupid decisions, and it's going to come back to harm us, and we're going to fall. But if we have an abundance of counselors, then there is victory. Now, it doesn't mean an abundance of bad counselors. Because we can't have bad counselors, such as Rehoboam. Rehoboam had the old men, and he had the young men. The young men were bad counselors, and who did he listen to? He listened to the bad ones. So bad counselors are no good. And even if you've got 100 bad ones, it's not going to benefit you. But if you have a good counselor, a wise counselor, someone who's trustworthy, then you should consult them. Consult them. Whenever you're making these big decisions, and there's going to be victory. Because there are times where we're not seeing things clearly. Whether we have a bias, 
whether there's some prejudice we have or we just don't have the experience or the wherewithal to know what to do and we need someone who's older, who's wiser, who's more objective, who can look at it from a different angle and they might be able to help us make a better decision. And then we're going to have victory instead of failing. And ultimately, who should our ultimate counselor be? Our ultimate counselor should be the Word of God. Psalm 119, 24. And this is what we should also expect from other men who we seek counsel from, is that they should be able to instruct us in the Word of God. Psalm 119, 24. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Your testimonies, he says, are my counselors. We have 66 counselors in the Word of God. That's 66 books of the Bible. And we should consult them as our ultimate counselors on all things. And then also wise men and women who are trustworthy, who themselves know the Word of God, who have proven through their life that they have experience and wisdom, and then we should consult them as well whenever we're making these big decisions, especially young people when they're wanting to get married. They should ask their parents. They should ask me especially if I'm their parent or their pastor. What about this person? Is he a deadbeat or not? Because we need to know that before you marry them. Or is she a worthless bum? Should I marry her or not? Or is she going to be quality? Right? We need to know these things because it's a crucial decision. And many times we're young, we're not thinking objectively, especially if they are stricken with love, right? Or what they think is love. So we need help in these types of things. And we should be able to provide that for one another. 15, who is, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. Whenever you are a guarantor for a stranger, whenever you put up collateral or you put up your own uh, pledge, your word, uh, a cosigner, for someone who is a stranger that you're unsure of. You don't know if this person is trustworthy. Well, if you do that, you're going to suffer for it because he's not going to pay what he owes, and then who's it going to be upon? It's going to be upon you. Then you are going to have to come and be the surety for this person that did not make the payment. So he's saying, don't do this. Don't be a guarantor for a stranger. Don't do it at all. But the one who hates this, he's going to be secure. His estate, his household, his possessions will be secure. His name will be secure because he's not attaching his name and his household to some stranger that he doesn't know the character of and whether or not they're going to make good on what they have promised to do. So don't be a guarantor in this way. Proverbs chapter 6, he mentioned this already. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So if you've done this, he says, do whatever it takes to get out from under it as quickly as possible. 
this is what we should do. But we also should not do this foolishly. We should not co-sign, be a guarantor in this way for other people uh, in, a very, in a foolish way. Otherwise, it will lead to our own ruin and demise. Then verse 16. A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. Here, the contrast between the man and the woman. The gracious woman, she gains honor for herself. A woman of grace, of dignity, of virtue, a godly woman, a quiet godly woman, is going to be an honorable woman. People are going to speak highly of her. Her husband is going to speak highly of her. Her children will praise her. Others in the church will see her in the way that she is, and they will praise her. Even people in society will see the way that she is and have a very high, favorable view of this woman. She gains honor for herself in this life, and then also, ultimately, in the life to come. Because if she's a gracious woman, and she's behaved in this gracious way, then on the day of judgment, God is going to exalt her. God is going to honor her and bring forward her righteousness in this way. But then ruthless men, they gain riches. Okay, they may attain riches just like the gracious woman attains honor, but are their riches going to be a benefit to them in the life to come? Her honor will benefit her in the life to come because it's coming from graciousness, but their riches will not benefit them because it's coming from their own ruthlessness. So it's not going to be of any benefit or value to them. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. 1 Peter 3 verse 1 says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So there, the graciousness of Sarah, here, this is being mentioned nearly 2,000 years after Abraham and Sarah lived, and yet she's still being mentioned in this honorable way. It gained honor for her, amongst the righteous, and certainly honor for her among, uh, there before the sight of God as well. And if women today behave in the same way as her, as she did, then they will also have the same honor if they become her children by following her example and living the way that she did. But then these ruthless men who attain to their riches, they're going to perish in the way. Just as we read earlier, their riches will not deliver them on the day of judgment. So here again, we have set before us so clearly in all of these ways, this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And we ought to pursue, pursue what is good and abhor what is evil. Put those things away from us and live 
godly lives that are pleasing in the sight of God. So let's then strive after this uh, this week and let us uh, pursue those things that make for peace and that bring glory and honor to God. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word and Lord how it so clearly teaches us, Lord, to make a distinction between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness. Lord, we have seen Lord, so clearly the pathway of the righteous set in contrast to the pathway of the wicked. Lord, we have seen as well the outcome of the righteous in contrast to the outcome of the wicked. And Lord, we know that these things are certain, that they are unchanging. Lord, that they are settled in the heavens because they have been declared by your holy word. So Lord, may we not entertain any delusion or any idea that we can live a life of sin and wickedness and yet receive eternal glory and honor. But rather, Lord, may we see and understand that it is righteousness that will deliver us on the day of wrath. And Lord, not our own righteousness, because who is righteous in your sight? But only the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, when it is accounted to us. Only that righteousness is acceptable in your sight, and only it will deliver us Lord, on the day of judgment. So, Father, may we be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is for all who believe in him. And, Lord, may our desire be to be clothed with that and for that righteousness then to manifest itself, Lord, in the way that we live day in and day out in this present world. So, Father, we pray that we would live godly lives, Lord, that we would be just and fair in our dealings with others, Lord, that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, as well, we pray, Lord, that we would be good examples and that we would be a, uh, Lord, salt in this present world, uh, preserving it, Lord, from evil. Lord, use us to influence others, to be a blessing to our neighbors. Lord, to be a blessing to the city in which we live, to our state, to our country. Lord, we do pray that you would give to us uh, rulers and leaders, Lord, that would enact uh, laws and policies that are consistent with your word, Lord, that are beneficial to the church and to the Christian home so that we might live quiet, peaceful lives in all godliness. Lord, as well, that you would deliver us from wicked men. Lord, that we might rejoice when they perish, seeing that they will no longer be able to torment us and, Lord, perpetuate evil in this world. So, Father, we pray that whatever your will, Lord, whatever it is that you lay out before us in regards to our existence in this world. Lord, we pray that you give us strength, that you give us grace, and that you help us to persevere until we enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, be with us as we travel home this evening. Lord, this afternoon, give us safety on the road. We pray as well, Lord, that you continue to sustain us as a church. Lord, that you would build us up. Uh, Lord, that you would heal us uh, from this recent uh, conflict that we've uh, gone through, Lord, that we might be able to overcome and press on, and Lord, that you might add to our number. Lord, be with us and bless us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.